The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report 2009 Video Archive. Buy your copy today at CorbettReport.com. You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this second day of July, 2011. I'd like to welcome everyone back to this podcast and invite all of you, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos created and conducted by myself in the past, and links to other alternative independent media websites like globalresearch.ca, where you can find commercial-free, independent, alternative news and information that you can use in your daily life. I would like to thank everyone, as always, for continuing to support The Corbett Report and give a special thank you to all of those people who either ordered a copy of my 2009 video archive DVD over the course of the past week and or those who signed up to become subscribers to The Corbett Report, that is to give a small 100 Japanese yen per month donation to help keep The Corbett Report growing and expanding. And once again, I couldn't do this without all of you, so I very much thank you for your support. And I have also received a number of emails from various people who said they would like to contribute or to help support the Corbett Report, but don't have a credit card and or don't want to use any sort of PayPal-type system. And to all of you, I can say I very much do sympathize with your situation, and I certainly, truly would not want anyone to to go to uh, actually sign up for PayPal or anything. If you're not already using it, please don't do so just in order to send me money, which is absolutely not the point of this operation. So, to all of you in that situation, I very much sympathize, but I am really not set up like a business, and I really don't have any uh, financial infrastructure for s- accepting payments in any other way at this point. And I am researching alternatives to PayPal and other ways that people could help support me. So if anyone knows an easy way to do that through uh, international means, because obviously I'm here in Japan, and it's quite a headache to come up with any sort of financial infrastructure like this. So I am going to continue looking for ways that people who don't want to use PayPal can support me, but by all means, if you're not already using PayPal, please don't do so just in order to support the Corbett Report. That is not what I want at all. And uh, on that note, there's also people who are constantly emailing me about the iTunes store issue, and once again, I fully and completely sympathize with your plight, and would like to stress once again that Apple support just continues to email me back once every few weeks with uh, ridiculous auto-responses from non-human beings about how I just have to change my side of things and everything will magically come back to life. But um, really, there's nothing I can do on my side, and I've tried to make that clear to them, but clearly it's not actual human beings that Apple iTunes support. So, once again, the uh, Corbett Report podcast is not available on the iTunes store, but you can still subscribe through iTunes if you go to corbettreport.com slash subscribe and use the RSS feeds there to subscribe uh, in your iTunes. And if that doesn't work through your browser, then all you have to do is copy and paste that into the advanced subscribe to podcast tab of uh, the iTunes uh, program. And I know that uh, a lot of people might have problems doing that. I am going to put together a video showing you step-by-step how to do that. Um, But until that time, 
Uh, if anyone actually has an iPhone and would like to just stream the Corbett Report, there is an app called Truth Seeker, and it's by BAPS. And it is uh, an app that has not only the Corbett Report, but a number of other alternative media podcasts, and you can stream them through your iPhone. Um, so that's a handy way of getting the latest information from the Corbett Report if you happen to have an iPhone slave device like myself and are plugged into that particular matrix. Well, let's use it to help distribute the information. So you can go to truthseekerapp.com, and I will put the link in the documentation section for today's episode so you can find that app and begin streaming the things to your iPhone. And as I say, there will be a, a video forthcoming very shortly about how to subscribe uh, to to the Corbett Report podcast via iTunes, um, even though iTunes Store has removed my podcast for no good reason. But once again, we have a lot of information to go through in this very special episode of the Corbett Report podcast. So without further ado, let's get straight into it. The Declaration of Independence, written by Thomas Jefferson and passed in Congress as a unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America, July 4, 1776. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that to secure these rights governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness." Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shewn that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. 
he has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained, and when so suspended he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. For quartering large bodies of armed troops among us. For protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefit of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies. For taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. 
He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation." He has constrained our fellow citizens, taken captive on the high seas, to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us, and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince, whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant, is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They, too, have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. We must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them, as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace friends. We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in General Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of a right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that, as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Read by Rick Kistner for lit to go on the web at fcit.usf.edu. Welcome, my friends, to episode 193 of the Corbett Report podcast, Philosophy of Freedom, the Declaration of Independence. And as I'm sure my American listeners do not need to be told, of course, this is the July 4th Independence Day long weekend, 
So once again, while people are out enjoying time with f- friends and family and enjoying barbecues and fireworks, it is a time when we can turn our minds to somewhat weightier matters than we usually do and start to think of the significance of the signing of that document, the Declaration of Independence, on the 4th of July, 1776. And this is a part of the Philosophy of Freedom series in this podcast because I feel that this is one of the most important political philosophical documents in the history of human civilization. And I say that not as an American, but as a Canadian living in Japan who has none of the type of emotional or any other type of uh, baggage or biases towards this document that you might expect from, say, an American. And that's not to say that Americans just blindly uh, cherish these documents, but some of them do. Some of them don't really understand the importance or significance of this document and are unable to place it in the context of where it was coming from and what it really tells us today about the way we should be conducting our uh, our political relations with each other and on what philosophical basis those should stand or fall. Now, this is an extremely, extremely important subject and one that goes to the very heart of what we are doing here at the Corbett Report. And it's one that I would like to elucidate at at much greater length today. But while there are many, many, many mainstream sources where you can find out more about the Declaration of Independence and the Revolutionary Generation, and I would wholeheartedly absolutely 100% encourage you to seek out and find those sources and, and to find out more information about the drafting of this document. But today, I don't want to talk about the Declaration of Independence as an historical relic or something that is in the past and should be kept there, which is, I think, the gist and thrust of most of the mainstream videos and lectures and speeches that use the Declaration of Independence as a shining example of what the United States was founded upon, but never really seek to place it into our current political context. Because I think this is very much a living document, and if it was philosophically true 230 or 40 years ago, it is nonetheless true today. So I want to start exploring some of the timeless truths that are embedded in this document, and I think it's absolutely every bit as relevant to us here today as it was to the residents of the 13 American colonies back in 1776. So in order to start getting a grip on the Declaration and what it really represents to us here today in 2011, I'd like to turn to a lecture that was delivered by Michael Badnerick at the Constitutional Congress of 2009. I will let you explore more about the Constitutional Congress through their website cc2009.us, but just what is the Constitution or what was the Constitutional Congress of 2009 while reading from the bottom of the About section on cc2009.us. Quote, the constitutional crisis is upon us. By now it should be clear what fate awaits us should we fail to rise in numbers and spirit and begin to peacefully resist. Wanted or not, it is our duty in this day to act in defense of the divine gift of liberty. This is the sole purpose of Continental Congress 2009. It's not a public protest. It's not a freedom rally. It's not a constitutional convention. It is, however, the only solution being proposed to remove the cancer of despotism that plagues our republic. The historic CC 2009 event will gather representatives of the people to document the violations of our law, debate the options the people possess to peacefully resist the tyrants, and emerge with a plan for the people to restore constitutional order and the light of liberty. End quote. Well, so that is the the main gist and summary of what the Continental Congress was aiming towards in 2009, and you can go and further explore that website if you're interested. But today we're going to listen to a lecture that was delivered by 
constitutional scholar, researcher, and former presidential candidate Michael Badnerick, who, as the listeners to the Corbett Report interview feed might know, was recently interviewed by myself uh, just a few days ago on this topic. Unfortunately, we were very, very much pressed for time during that interview, so we were not really able to get into the substance, the meat and potatoes of what I wanted to discuss. So instead of uh, playing a clip from that interview, which of course you can go and listen to from the Corbett Report website, but instead of that, let's listen to this speech that he delivered, or at least a section of that speech, at the Continental Congress, where he talked about the Declaration of Independence and its real significance. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. These are probably the most famous words. If they're not, they're certainly in the top ten. As we look around, it is clear that all men are not treated equally. And unfortunately, that's because of a, an error in understanding in that sentence self-evident. Today we would probably call that obvious. Unfortunately there is nothing obvious. 2 plus 2 is equal to 4. That is obvious to us. But if you hold out a handful of pennies to a child, the child has to count. 2 plus 2 is not obvious to the child. You and I We'd never put our hand on a stove as we walk through the kitchen because we know there's a possibility the stove would be hot. But to a child trying to find out what mother is cooking, hot is not obvious. Hot is not obvious until you have experienced your first blisters. So as sad as it is, liberty should be self-evident. Liberty is obvious to us. But we make a mistake if we assume that the liberty and the principles therein are obvious to all of our fellow Americans. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. I pronounce that word unalienable for a reason. The root to that word is lean. If you want to take out a mortgage on your home, the bank will loan you money, but your house is now collateral. The bank will put a lien on your property. That means that it is still your property, but it has certain limitations, certain conditions that have been placed upon the property. Before you can sell that property, you have a requirement to satisfy that lien. So if your rights are unalienable, they are rights which cannot have conditions put on them. You have freedom of religion, not freedom of religion if you are Jewish, Catholic, or Protestant. You have a right to keep and bear arms to protect your life and the lives of your family, not you have a right to keep and bear arms as long as it's not a, an assault rifle or a Saturday night special or doesn't use cop killer bullets. Your rights are unalienable. They are individual rights. They are not constitutional rights. The Constitution nor the Bill of Rights grant you nothing. You have those rights in spite of those pieces of paper. The people in China 
have a right to life. They don't have a constitution, they don't have a bill of rights, and they don't have a government that respects those rights. We do have a constitution, we do have a bill of rights, but we do not have a government that respects those rights. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, the Patriot Act, the Military Commissions Act, the Homegrown Terrorism Act, and, and the trillion dollar bailouts and stimulus packages, if these do not constitute a long train of abuses pursuing invariably the same object, I don't know what it would require. What would our government have to do before people in the United States realize that this is not the reason the Founding Fathers established our constitutional republic? It is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Not only, not only do we have a right to protect ourselves against a, from a government out of control, we have a moral obligation to do so. We the people ordain and establish the Constitution. We the people created Congress. They work for us, not the other way around. They are out of control because our parents and grandparents and previous generations have allowed the government to get out of control. Fortunately, we are here. We are now and we will, in this process of the Continental Congress, begin providing for new guards for our future security. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. We stand here in the same political position that our founding fathers did before they wrote and signed the Declaration of Independence. They were not happy about taxation without representation. They were not happy with many of the laws that were being passed in the colonies. And all of those things had them irritated. But the one thing that kind of topped the whole list is the fact that the king refused to listen to their petitions. There was no negotiation. There was no give and take. There was no communication between the colonies and the crown. Bob Schultz established We the People Foundation nearly 20 years ago, and we have gone through a long process of documenting these requests, asking the government to show us the law, and they have not dignified our existence with a response. We stand here ready to demand a response. They work for us. I have told people over and over again that liberty is not my highest priority. Liberty is my only priority. I eat and sleep. 
I eat and sleep every day only so that I can wake up and work harder to restore the liberty that our founding fathers established, to restore the United States that I grew up learning about as a young boy, as a Boy Scout carrying the flag in every parade I had the opportunity to do so. That is the United States that I am trying to reestablish. And I ask people frequently, if you had the opportunity, would you sign the declaration again today if you were given that opportunity? And their first reaction is, oh, certainly. I point out to them that the 56 men who did sign the Declaration of Independence were all technically signing their own death warrant. They all knew that the king would consider this treason. And I asked them, would you sign the Declaration of Independence knowing that not having a driver's license, you'd be pulled over by the local police? That not filling out your 1040 form, the IRS would take you into federal court? That by not having the required federal identification that Homeland Security might be looking for you. Would you sign the Declaration of Independence then? I will let you go and listen to the rest of that speech if you so desire by following the link from the CorbettReport.com to the uh, the video from which that audio came. It's CC09 Bednarik presentation on YouTube, and you can go and listen to the rest of that speech. But I want to pick up from that very interesting question. Would you sign the De Declaration of Independence today, even knowing that it was, in all intents and purposes, signing your own death warrant? Are we made of the same metal and constitution as the founding fathers who were willing to put their lives and their sacred honor on the line in order to stand up for what they truly believed to be self-evident, that all men are created equal? Well, again, it's very difficult to understand and to really conceptualize just how radical a philosophy that was in the time and context in which it was written, or how much, of it, how much it really was a death sentence for those who were signing should they fail in their enterprise of creating a new country. And for whatever faults any of the individual founding fathers may have had, or certainly did have in many instances, and for all the faults that the American uh, country has and the government has devolved into as it is today, it is still nonetheless a remarkable document that will forever, for all time, enshrine the idea of human liberty. And that idea may be marred by the individuals who are implementing it and the fact that systems become corrupted over time, but nonetheless, the idea of human liberty is bulletproof. It will stand up over the test of time, and it is still continuing to develop today. And we are the ones who have to pick up and carry that torch as far as we can so that the next generation, again, has a chance to bring about the ideals of liberty. This is not a vague philosophical construct. This is not something that is just an airy-fairy academic conversation. This is something that is very real and something that really does affect ourselves and future generations and, ultimately, the future of humanity. So in order to start exploring the real significance of the Declaration of Independence for us here today, Let's start by finding out what really is the basis of the Declaration of Independence. What was it really about? And for that, let's turn to an extremely surprising source, Colin Powell, talking on the History Channel. 
If you review our Declaration of Independence, it has those beautiful words about all men are created equal and governments are formed among men to represent the people. It was a good statement of what we were all about. And that's the only thing people remember about the Declaration of Independence, that it was about all men are created equal. But it's really a roughly a 28-count indictment against King George. And therefore, because of the, the way in which the British Crown treated us, we now declare that we are a free country, and we want to let you know why now. We're going to have a war. We're going to have a war. Well, Colin, actually, for once, maybe I agree with you. Um, Ultimately, the Declaration of Independence, for all of its incredibly beautiful language and for its exquisite construction and elaboration of the idea that all men are created equal and what that really means and its philosophical significance on those issues, for all of that, really, what it was essentially doing was declaring a war against King George and his uh, invading marauding forces and the mercenaries who were set up against the American colonists, and doing so in a way as to justify the need for that war. That's fundamentally what the Declaration was about, and what it was attempting to do was to detail that long list of usurpations that King George had beset upon the colonies. And that is really the significance of the document and how it can still speak to us here today. So let's get a little bit deeper into that, not by using Colin Powell as our source, but turning to more respectable uh, sources. And we're going to actually listen to uh, a little bit from uh, Webster Tarpley's 9-11 Synthetic Terror Made in USA. A uh, very interesting read, lots of information. It is now several years uh, out of date, I suppose. It's not full of the, the most up-to-date 9-11 information, but it's still nonetheless a very interesting and informative read. And as much as I disagree with Tarpley about many things, as you may have heard in our quote-unquote interview recently, which was really just a Webster Tarpley monologue, but uh, as much as I disagree with him on a lot of his ideas for political solutions, there are certainly things in which I uh, totally agree with him, and one of them comes from this, this book, and it's from chapter 12, called Conspiracy Theory, The Great American Tradition. So I'll read an extended passage from that. Quote, The Declaration of Independence, Conspiracy Theory. The U.S. Declaration of Independence, signed in Congress in Philadelphia on July 4, 1776, is one of the most celebrated conspiracy theories of all time. Here we read towards the beginning a description of the present situation of the states which notes that when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. This is followed by a long catalogue of misdeeds and abuses committed by the British monarch, introduced by the refrain, he has. At the end of the catalogue, there is a summary paragraph which makes clear that what has been presented should not be thought of as a laundry list of complaints about disparate events, but rather as the implacable and systematic operations of a concerted plot, of a conspiracy. In the words of Thomas Jefferson, as edited by Benjamin Franklin and others, The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having, in direct object, the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. The ministers changed, the policies shifted, but the controlling goal of tyranny remained. It is a conspiracy theory of the type which would make many a modern academic or neocon talk show host squirm. It is also one of the greatest political documents of world history. Were Jefferson and Franklin paranoids, mere conspiracy buffs? 
it is perfectly correct to say that the United States as a country was founded on conspiracy theory, one which served as a powerful unifying ideology for the entire revolutionary generation. The approach of their analysis, it should be noted, was empirical as well as analytical. They recognized the need to back up their conspiracy theory with an abundant supply of factual material. This point of documentation and intelligibility is a key point, which the analysts and researchers of today need to remember. End quote. Well, once again, you can go and read more about the other aspects of the conspiracy theory, which is such a fundamental part of American politics and has been for centuries, but which in our modern era has been turned into a pejorative term to try to dismiss anyone who dares to raise questions about the official government story of certain events. So, again, that's a very, very interesting read, and I think that very much goes to the heart of what I am attempting to put across today, that although, of course, the Declaration of Independence is extremely important for the ideas that it presents in its preamble, but for the long list of usurpations that King George III was accused of, the list of grievances against King George... Well, that is really the meat and potatoes of the document, and it is that that ultimately propels the, uh, the, the signers of that document, the drafters of that document, everyone who agreed in spirit with that document at the time, propelled them towards a revolution, an actual war where they literally put their lives on the line for the ideals that they were willing to stand up for and to fight against those long list of, uh, of abuses and usurpations that they noted. So we come back to the question... In our current day and age, as much as it may be a death sentence, or at the very least a social death sentence, to put our name to such a type of document that would seek to affirm our own unalienable human rights against the usurpations of those in the positions of power who are more and more trying to infringe those rights, well, the question is, would you sign this document today? And that is not a rhetorical question, nor is it one that I would want you to answer without hearing the modern-day equivalent of the list of grievances, similar to the one that Jefferson provided for his readers. So can we construct a modern-day list of abuses and usurpations that are being used to establish an absolute tyranny over the people of the world? It's Wednesday, and that means tax protesters. An anti-tax demonstration is scheduled for downtown's Keener Plaza April 15th. But charges are flying that one of the organizing groups is an extremist anti-government group. New on the Edge, Charles Jaco says the group denies it. Charles. Well, Sandy, the group is the Constitution Party, and they run candidates for, among other offices, mayor of St. Louis, congressional seats, and several statewide Missouri offices. But the Anti-Defamation League, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and at one point, the Missouri Highway Patrol all labeled the Constitution Party an anti-government extremist organization. That upset members not only of the party, but at least one high-profile Missouri politician as well. Well, still at home, and censored government documents outlining controversial plans to spy on unsuspecting internet users have been revealed. Top-level government officials have been in talks with the internet industry over a proposal to log and store the web activities of every Australian, even if you're not suspected of committing a crime. Then the data will be made available to law enforcement agencies around the country. Now, the government had intended to keep this plan under wraps 
However, the largely censored documents were obtained under the Freedom of Information laws, with 90% of the detail crossed out with a thick black marker. So what exactly are they hiding? Now, control orders are the orphans of our legal system's attempts to crack down on terrorism. They were introduced as a temporary measure in 2005 to deal with people the authorities believe could not be charged, tried or convicted of any offence. No one much likes them, but some see no alternative. Now the issue risks splitting the coalition government, with an internal review thought likely to recommend they should stay, in line with the views of the Home Secretary and the head of MI5. But that will not please the Liberal Democrats and some Conservative MPs. Now, on whose authority are you able to illegally search my bag? On whose authority? We've explained already, sir. End no, you haven't explained. You haven't explained at all. How is this end of discussion? It's a legal search. Unless I'm detained or arrested, you cannot search my bag in a public park. End of story. <laughs> like, end of story. It's an illegal search. Can, can somebody please define that this is a legal search without being detained or arrested? I'm trying to enter public property. We've explained. We yeah. check your bag, there's nothing in it that can cause anyone any harm. You're free to enjoy yourself in the park. You don't open your bag, you don't get in. Well, I'm not letting you illegally search me. Then you're not coming in. Why? On whose authority? On whose authority? We're living through exceptionally difficult times. The financial crisis and its dramatic impact on employment and budgets, the climate crisis which threatens our very survival. A period of anxiety, uncertainty and lack of confidence. Yet these problems can be overcome by a joint effort in our, and between our countries. 2009 is also the first year of global governance with the establishment of the G20 in the middle of the financial crisis. The climate conference in Copenhagen is another step towards the global management of our planet. Uh, we are moving towards a, a globally informed uh, community that's got to live with itself. And we have always espoused democracy. I can tell you that the two moves the Greens have made for a global uh, democratic um, support for moves in the United Nations have been voted down by all other parties, both in 2002 and earlier this year. This is, this is conceptual, but I, I'm talking here about vision. Why should Australia not be the centre of what is inevitably going to be a, a global parliamentary uh, governance down the line if we human beings are going to live with each other on this marvellous planet of ours as we go on to the joyride, joyride of the future? Of course we're going to have to make consensus decisions. And representative democracy, as Winston Churchill noted, is full of flaws, but it's the best we have. And if we're going to, the point I was making, if we can invade Iraq uh, and perhaps Afghanistan in the name of democracy, surely we can peacefully get behind moves to have a global governance. Congressman Paul, thank you for joining us. Uh, first of all, you think the president does not have the right to engage the U.S. in the NATO-led effort in Libya without Congress's approval. Today, in his press conference, the president made clear that he believes the law does allow him to make this commitment on his own 
Listen to this for a moment, if you would. I'm not a Supreme Court justice, so I'm not, I'm not going to uh, uh, put, put my constitutional law professor hat on here. Do I think that uh, our actions in any way violate the War Powers Resolution? The answer is no. So I don't even have to get to the constitutional question. Simply, sir, what's your reaction? <laughs> That's a horrible statement. Um, no, he, he should get to the Constitution. He doesn't have to be a constitutional lawyer. You take an oath of office to obey the Constitution. If we don't know what it says, how can we take the oath? Uh, the Constitution is very clear. You don't go to war without a declaration. I agree there's some confusion with the War Powers Resolution because technically it legalized war rather than prevented war. So I don't particularly like that bill, but even if it's a law of the land, even that he has violated uh, because he can't go to war by talking to the United Nations and NATO and refusing to talk to the Congress. I, I think this is so sad and the kind of thing that I have been fighting with both parties for decades now. I think it's taken one step worse because he's been a little bit more aggressive in declaring that he as the unitary president, that he can do what he wants, he, he doesn't have to tell the Congress. So I find it rather sad that he has taken that position. President Obama today proposed something new, something called prolonged detention. Doesn't sound that bad, right? Prolonged detention. Did you ever see the movie Minority Report? It was based on a Philip K. Dick short story. It came out in 2002. It starred Tom Cruise, remember? He played a police officer in something called the Department of Pre-Crime. Pre-Crime is where people are arrested and incarcerated to prevent crimes that they have not yet committed. Mr. Marks. My mandate of the District of Columbia Pre-Crime Division. I'm placing you under arrest for the future murder of Sarah Marks and Donald Dubinos. Take place today, April 22nd, at 0800 hours, four minutes. No, I didn't do anything. You didn't do anything, but you're gonna. Future murder. Creepy, right? Putting somebody in jail, not for what they've done, but for what you're very sure they're going to do? There may be a number of people who cannot be prosecuted for past crimes. In some cases, because evidence may be tainted but who nonetheless pose a threat to the security of the United States. We're not prosecuting them for past crimes, but we need to keep them in prison because of our expectation of their future crimes. The TSA saying it did the right thing, forcing a 95-year-old woman with cancer to take off her adult diaper to be searched. Now, the woman and her daughter were flying out of Florida Two weeks ago, they were going through security when they say the TSA agent felt something suspicious on the woman's leg, then took her to a private room to be searched. Listen to this. And they came out and told me that it had something to do with her uh, depends, that it was wet and it was firm and they couldn't check it thoroughly. She would have to remove it. And I was, I said, I don't have an extra one with me. Normally this isn't a problem. And she said that she could not complete the security check without the, the depends off. Here's the TSA's response. Uh, quote, while every person and item must be screened before entering the secure boarding area, TSA works with passengers to resolve security alarms in a respectful and sensitive manner. We've reviewed the circumstances involving this screening and determined that our officers acted professionally and according to proper procedure. Well, that is of necessity a short and woefully incomplete listing 
of some of the abuses and usurpations that the people of the world have been put under by those who would seek to deprive us of our unalienable human rights. But the question, of course, is what are we to do about it? Well, let's once again re-listen to the final words of the Declaration of Independence as drafted by Thomas Jefferson in June of 1776 and ask ourselves the question of what the meaning of Independence Day really is. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They, too, have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. We must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them, as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace friends. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in General Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the World, for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of a right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives our fortunes, and our sacred honor. <laughs>